Hey, if you need a Bible this morning, we have some Bibles in the back. Always want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word. See that hand? If you need one, just raise your hand. We'll make sure you get a Bible to follow along with us here. And if you brought your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17. (laughs) Uh, I went and watched a high school basketball game just a few weeks ago. It was about what I expected it to be as we sat in the Masters University gym. Uh, Long story, but that's where the game was. I was just reminded of high school basketball. It was uh, was fun. It was exciting. The atmosphere was right. The vibe was right. Uh, It was, like I said, exactly what I was expecting it to be. Both teams were Uh, pretty well represented in the stands, both teams pretty evenly matched, at least from what I could tell uh, from warm-ups. Both teams had a dude who could dunk. I was was envious. Uh, By the time I bought Hollis some pom-poms to cheer for teams she didn't know and a game she doesn't understand, it was time for uh, the starting lineups. It's time for that introduction uh, of the the starting players, and I admit it's been a minute since my last high school game, but what a moment that is. As the starting players are introduced, and they, you know it if you've been to a game, they kind of burst out from their chair through that little lineup of the guys who aren't starting, which is always kind of sad, but... They kind of burst onto the court with that swagger a little bit, sort of that confident strut. Um, There are what have to be rehearsed handshakes and team huddles, and there can be music and lights, and so much of it all play a role. And what's it all for? Um, I never used to understand it, but now I'm pretty sure I got it. It's all for intimidation. It's all for intimidation, the The team huddles and the chants and the exaggerated stats, by the way. How come every player is like three inches taller than he actually is in reality? Uh, It's all for intimidation. That whole moment is not only meant to introduce players, but it's a moment to just totally scare the other team. Look how cool the handshakes are. Look how big the the center is. Uh, Look how you know, how hyped they are in that team huddle. It's meant to make the opposing team think they've lost before the game even begins. Our last few chapters in 1 Kings have been a little bit like introducing the starting lineup at a basketball game. There, of course, haven't been handshakes or walkout songs, but... It has been a moment for intimidation. The kings of Israel are being introduced. And they're big and they're scary and they're getting worse with each one that we meet. We kind of seem to hit rock bottom as we meet Ahab. We met him two weeks ago. We saw from him just how evil he was. Ahab is the worst king to date here in 1 Kings 16. 
He's by far the most wicked, the most rebellious towards God. He, he marries this woman. His queen is named Jezebel. She's the daughter of a, of a king of the Sidonians, and she teaches Ahab all about false worship, all about worshiping this false god named Baal. And so it begins. Baal starts to surface. He starts to creep onto the scene. The king introduces Baal worship to the people, and he brings all these false images of Baal, the Asherah, and Ahab, God says, he's the worst man. He's the worst. He has no regard for God, for true worship. He doesn't care about God's word or God's warning. He rebuilds Jericho despite God saying, don't do this. This is some kind of evil. You may even say that Ahab is like the starting center for Baal High School. Mascot, you guessed it. The devils. Thank you. I worked hard on that joke. Uh, But here's the point. As we meet these kings, I think it's very likely that some are, especially in this moment, are being tempted to think, is Baal going to win? These these guys are intimidating. These kings are the worst. This is a, a scary lineup. Until we come to chapter 17, verse 1, we finally get just a moment of reprieve through Elijah. 17.1, God begins to introduce the home team a little bit. We ended there two weeks ago, and I think here now is the beginning of God teaching his people something very important teaching his people that he's in control. He wants to show them that they have nothing to fear no matter how intimidating Baal's team looks. No matter how scary the situation may seem, how dark, how evil the times may appear, God wants to teach them here that he's still very much in control. But before the true God and this false god Baal actually face off against each other, and they will, God has something to teach us first. Before the game starts, God has a starting lineup of his own, an introduction of his own, and it's not the people, it's not Elijah, although he's going to play a serious role. He's, He's heavily involved here. God actually just wants us to teach him about him, because God is the team. It's not about kings. God's the only one that matters. It's not about the wicked rulers at all. It's about God. And when we realize who God is and when we understand more of what he is like, then we will grasp with more certainty and confidence how amazing God truly is and how with God we have nothing to fear. And that's what God is trying to do here. That's what God is trying to accomplish through his word. He's trying to help us see who he is and what he's like. And he wants us to make that obvious choice to yield our lives to him, to not be intimidated by these false man-made gods, but to trust in him wholeheartedly as the one and only God. Yahweh versus Baal, it is. 
It will happen. But what does God want to teach us before the big game, before the match with the people's false God? Chapter 17, the word of Yahweh is the theme of the chapter, the word of the Lord. That little phrase shows up again and again and through it. I think we learn this in our big idea. God wants you to know that he is the one true God. Our big idea this morning, God wants you to know that he's the one true God. In other words, God reveals himself through his word to us so that we recognize that there's just no other God like him, that he alone is God. There is no other. There's no other God that compares to the Lord, that compares to Yahweh. God is is not even close to being like, like Baal or some other man-made God. They're not even in the same league. God tells us who he is through his word. And he does that because he wants us to know that he should be first in, in, in our life and that his patience won't last forever. If we reject him and if we insist on our sin, God's patience will run out. God will remove himself from those who neglect him. And God also wants us to know through his word that he is the creator and that he can do whatever he wants. He is unmatched in power and he can provide through whatever means he chooses. God wants us to know him through his word, that he's the source of goodness and that he's not reserved. He's not restricted. He's not exclusive with his kindness. All are invited into his family. All have the opportunity to receive from him the good gifts he offers, to receive his blessing. God tells us through his word that from salvation all the way to daily bread. God doesn't just love some. He doesn't just offer to a select few. No, God so loves the world. By faith, all can know his blessing. By belief, you can know God's grace and God's goodness. Let's read our text and and see some of these truths on display. We'll start back in verse 1 of chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It'll be that you'll drink of the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up. Makes sense because of verse 1. Because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. 
Uh, she was going to get it. He called to her again and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you've said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. She and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. This is the word of God. Again, God reveals himself through his word. What does he want us to know about him? Let's start here. Number one, God won't be patient forever. God won't be patient forever. We learn in these verses 2 and 3 through God's people that persisting in sin will separate you from God. You might think of it this way. He isn't some God that you can use however or whenever you're comfortable with or when it's convenient for you. He's a real God. He is the one true God, not some lucky charm. Elijah in verse 3 is instructed to leave. Here's where this comes from. It says he is to hide by God's word to go east of the Jordan by this little brook. We'll learn in chapter 18 that Jezebel is not exactly a fan of God's prophets. She's on a personal quest to kill them all. And even her husband, the king Ahab, he puts out a search warrant for Elijah. So it's a real royal effort here to put Elijah six feet underground. And God tells him to move. So what is this? Is this just God keeping this man safe? Is that what this go and hide command is about? A little bit, but certainly not everything. We have to think about Elijah and how he's introduced to us in verse 1. What's it say? He's a man who stood before God. You see that in verse 1? He's one whom the word of God came to, and by implication, we can also know he's one who speaks for God. He spoke the word that God gave to him to the people. So he is the one who brings the word of God. He's a a bearer of God's word. So what does this mean? When When he leaves, we have to think about it this way. What does that mean about the word of God? When he's withdrawn from the people, what does that tell us about God's word? Elijah's absence, it must be viewed as the absence of God's word. It must be viewed as God removing his word from the people. God's judgment on this Baal worship for all this wickedness and all this sin, it isn't just a drought. 
Yes, that's part of it. But it's much worse than that. It's a spiritual drought. There will be a silence from God. And that silence is its always a, a brutal judgment from God throughout Scripture. Anytime God's word is withdrawn, that's a very, very bad thing. We read this in Amos 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, Amos writes. And from the north to the east, they'll go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. It's such a bad thing when God's word is removed. How awful to be cut off from God, to be let go in judgment, to be given over to to, to your sin. And that's how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. What does God do to those who insist on idolatry? We don't really understand that word totally, so just replace it with sin. When, when you insist on living in your sinful way and, and doing those things that you prefer to do, what does Paul write about God? That eventually he withdraws from you. Three times Paul writes, God gives you up, just gives you up to your sin, to the sins you prefer so much. So it's not uncommon for us to think, hey, look, we don't have prophets anymore. We all have Bibles, right? Just raise your Bible up if you have a Bible this morning. Look at all these Bibles. There's a ton. Good job, Owen. So many Bibles. I tried to count. I stopped counting uh, just for my personal. I stopped counting at 17. I think I have 17 Bibles as a pastor, I don't even know if that's a lot. I'm not sure where I, where I stand on the scale, but I have all kinds of Bible study Bibles and Bibles in different translations, and some were given to me as gifts. I just bought this one the other day to, to see if it would be a good preaching Bible. I don't even know what that means. What's a preaching Bible? I don't know. I just love Bibles. I have tons of them. I have them all over. Some are Bibles that I write in. Some are Bibles that... I wouldn't even let Leah touch. Like, I just have Bibles everywhere, uh, and, and they matter to me. I have, I have Bibles on my phone. I have two different apps. Why do I have two? I don't know. I just I have them everywhere. I have a, a Bible app on my computer that I use mainly for, for studying. I have a ton of copies of God's Word, and I know you do too. It's so accessible. We do have God's word all around us. You can Google it. You can ask Alexa to help you. You can install apps on your phone. Uh, You know, you can buy a Bible and have it delivered to you the very next day. Bibles are, are everywhere. We have, how many? 150 copies of God's word here just in this room. What's my point? It's a lot of access to God's word. A lot of Bibles. And you can have all that accessed and still suffer the absence of God. If you ignore it, if you ignore God and you ignore his word, if you dismiss it, excuse it, ignore it, disdain it, you don't respect it, if you insist on your sinful lifestyle and reject God's word, 
he will withdraw from you. God will give you up. It's foolish to think that he won't just because we have unlimited copies of the Bible. His patience will run out. God will withdraw from you. He will give you over to the sin you love so much. God wants you to know that he's not just some lucky charm. He's real. And he demands and expects your devotion. And his patience won't last forever. It has a limit. God shows us that truth again and again. And a second truth, what else do we learn here in this particular text? I would say it this way. God is unlimited in power. God is unlimited in power. We see that. God can provide by whatever means necessary, verses 4 to 9. Elijah will now have to trust in God's provision. Okay, He announces the famine. It's happening. It's not going to take long before there is going to be an absence of food. And here now Elijah gets word from the Lord to leave. Here's the plan. Your water, it's going to come from a little brook. And your food... It's kind of worse. It's not exactly Uber Eats here. His daily bread and meat is going to be supplied by the ravens. Verse 5, Elijah goes. He plants himself by the brook Cherith. And what does Elijah discover? God's word is reliable. Despite the drought, Elijah has plenty to drink. He has plenty to eat, at least for a while. Verse 7, the brook eventually dries out, and Elijah receives new orders in verse 8. Head to Zarephath. Cool. What's the plan here, God? Well, there I've commanded a widow to provide for you. The author won't let us forget, in case our geography isn't that good, which it's tricky to keep track of it all, but Zarephath is in Sidon. This is not a, a good place. This is a godless place. And this is how God chooses to provide for Elijah with birds and a widow. You know, maybe I'll just say this before we press on. Please don't make yourself Elijah. I, I read so many comments about Elijah's life, how God provides for us. Just look at Elijah. Look how God sustained for Elijah in difficult times. Look for your ravens. Find your widows. <laughs> God can miraculously provide for you, but he also doesn't have to. It's better to think that there was something unique here happening with Elijah. Better to think that there are believers in Israel not a, very many, but likely some, who were suffering through that drought, who didn't get the privilege of raven delivery. And you know what? They're called to worship God anyway. And you say, ugh, that's not very encouraging. What is that about? I kind of thought the same until I read this. Elijah's life had to be preserved, for his task had not yet been completed. Until his work was done, God would see to it that he was preserved. That's the comfort of the word of the Lord. That's the comfort of the word of the Lord for every believer, provided for, sustained, while your task is yet incomplete. 
When our task in this life is done, the Lord takes us away by his chosen means. It could be sickness, it might be drought, it might be starvation. How death comes, though, doesn't matter to those who recognize that death is the Lord's way. They listen to their Savior when he tells them not to worry about food, not to worry about drink. They know that they're here to complete their Savior's task. I find that really encouraging. While my work is incomplete, I have no reason to fear food or water or shelter, a lack of those things. God will provide. But that really leads us to a more interesting note here. I think it's easy for us to think about us and how God might choose to provide for us in difficult times. After all, we are our favorite topic. But what about God? What do we learn about God here? So helpful if we force ourselves to keep God the focus and the subject. And here we see something interesting, ravens and widows. By the way, ravens were declared unclean in Leviticus chapter 11 a gross, dirty bird (laughs) that God is now choosing to be this method of delivery. And widows, a widow, verse 9, God says, to sustain you. That's kind of laughable. You could replace widow with junior hire. Like, you're sending me to a middle schooler? Thanks, Lord. What's going to happen here? To be a widow was not an easy life. To be a widow would be just saying it's somebody who has nothing. Most likely, they have zero. If they could even provide for themselves, that would be a lot. And our story details that very thing for us. This particular widow has just been barely getting by for far too long. And she's, <laughs> she's at the end of her resources And the point is, in this, I don't know, the unlikeliness of this provision, birds, a hopeless, helpless woman. I have a hard time thinking Elijah didn't, at least for a moment, think to himself, really? (laughs) What? But this is Yahweh. This is This is God, and he can provide however he wants to showcase his power, to show us the kind of God that he is. He can sustain people from water, from rocks, and manna from heaven when there's no food to be found. He can also use birds and widows if he wants to. The point isn't our needs being met. The point is the way in which God can provide Our creator lacks no creativity when it comes to this sort of stuff. He simply does whatever he wants. He's unlimited in power. And he showcases that for us so that we get a glimpse of the kind of power that our God has. There is no one like him, no one who can provide like he can. Let's look at one Last truth here this morning, God's word wants to teach you this. Number three, God's goodness is for anyone who will receive it. God's goodness is for anyone who will receive it, verses 10 to 16. So back to our story, Elijah obeys God's sort of new instruction here. He heads into enemy territory. He goes to Zarephath, verse 10, and 
Upon his arrival, he does meet a widow at the gate. Again, is God's word faithful and trustworthy? Yep, here she is. So he asks for water, and she goes to get it. And then he asks for a little bit more. Verse 11, hey, bring me a little bread too. And then verse 12, we get the widow's dilemma. She says, listen, you need to know I'm serious. So I'm going to begin it this way as... The Lord your God lives. This is this is a. I'm not bluffing here. She says, "I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl, and just a little oil in the jar." She wants him to know this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to get a few sticks here to start one last fire, because this is all I have left. I got enough for one pancake, one waffle. I must split it with my son, and then that's it. Again, we can't forget, because it's so important to this lady's story, where we're at. Sidon is the Baal capital. This is, this is the, the domain of Jezebel's false god. Her dad, the, the king of Sidonian, is right here. We have a widow who is very likely, very probable, a Baal worshiper. She's on her last day. She's hopeless and helpless, and she's staring death in the face for herself and for her son. And out of all the widows in the world, God chooses to send Elijah to this one. God's grace, it moves way beyond the boundaries of Israel. Israel, by the way, full of widows. God chooses to embrace this woman who just so happens to be a perfect picture of utter hopelessness. The last widow that anyone would choose is her, especially that's what God's people would have thought, this godless woman. Why her? Why does she get such rich, incredible blessing? We don't even get to know her name. Yet she'll serve an amazing purpose for Elijah. She'll be giving way more than is demanded of her here. And we'll talk more about her next week. But for now, notice her dilemma. She swears by Elijah's God. She wants him to know this is serious. This is all I got, man. Verse 13, Elijah has the nerve to ask for that first bite of that last meal. Give me the first nibble. And then go make some for you and your son. What nerve. How bold of Elijah. Well, not really. Because look at verse 14. This is why he can ask. He says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour will not be exhausted. Your jar of oil will not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Don't be afraid. You don't need to fear. I'm asking because this is what God can do. This is what God will do. And this is the reason the woman does not need to be afraid. In verse 15, she does it. She believes and she trusts in what God has said. I like to remind myself here, and I think it's good for all of us to grasp this. Her faith Her belief is put to the test. 
she had to live every day like she believed the word of God. She had to trust not just this day, but every day after. She had to believe in God's word, not just once, but again and again, every single morning when she went to make food. Verse 16 says, the oil wasn't exhausted. The jars weren't emptied. God's word was trustworthy. But she didn't get a Costco delivery There were no 50-pound bags of flour or gallons of oil that showed up on her doorstep. She had to face every day that this could potentially be the last time she could make this meal. And when she would return every morning, there it was in the cupboard, still enough oil, still enough flour for another day's worth of Food And this is an amazing gift for this widow. Think about it. Her faith answered every morning with a fresh reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises. Look at this again. Here it is again. Still enough. I almost emptied it last night, but here in the morning, here it is again. I have enough for today. Verse 15 is sweet in her household that says they ate for many days. God can bring drought and God can sustain. This woman's story, again, we don't even get to know her name, but it's one of my favorite pictures of faith. She isn't excluded from God's goodness. She's not cut off from God's gracious gifts because of where she lives, that would be a reason. Because of who she is, that would be a reason. Because of her sinful lifestyle, that would be a reason. Because of her social status, that might be a reason. And God says, no one is excluded from my grace. She's a nobody, an undeserving nobody who's dead in her sin, living in her sin, chasing after the bales of the world. And yet God chose her by grace. He gave her a chance for life and a chance for the light of his truth. God gave her the same chance that he gives you today. The same opportunity to put all your trust in the word of God. She was willing to give all that she had by faith. To believe in what God's word promised. By faith, she lived those days trusting that what God said was true. And she believed and she was blessed and she would never ever be the same. We haven't even started the real game yet, God versus Baal. It's coming. It's a, a few weeks away. It's going to be a good one. Let me spoiler alert. It's, it's, it's a blowout. But already, God shows us who he is. He, he shows us that we don't need to be intimidated by this evil lineup, this evil uprising. We don't need to be scared by the wicked's seeming success. Not if God is your God. Don't neglect him. So dangerous to insist on your sin again and again and reject his word. 
God shows us and proves that he can keep his promises. He, he, he shows us the kind of power that he has, and he promises life to all those who believe. He has the power to do it. Embrace the word of God, believe it, and trust it. And like this widow, I promise your life will change forever. Father, thank you for our time this morning. God, what a great reminder of who you are, of your goodness, of your love, of your power, of your grace that knows no end. Lord, I am so thankful that we can see this picture of who you are and how you've always been. And God, I pray that you'd help these young people see that you're still the same God today. You're one that isn't just some get out of hell free card. You're not a lucky charm to be manipulated and abused. You're the one true God meant to be feared and worshiped. And I pray that these young people would desire to submit their lives to you. God, a God who is powerful and kind and loving and gracious and who offers salvation to everyone. Lord, I pray you'd help us to embrace that Pray for these young teens to receive that this morning. We commit our morning to you in Christ's name. Amen.